We'll hear argument now number 96-292, Marion Johnson versus Christine Spankel. Mr. Gilmore? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Today the court is presented with a question whether the qualified immunity defense is as powerful in state courts as it is in federal courts, or whether its scope and its protection may vary among the states or between federal district courts in one state and state trial courts in the same state. Thirty-six states are involved in this between the amicus and the petitioners because of the importance of the qualified immunity defense to the practical functioning of state government and because of the value of this defense to the employees and officers of state and local governments throughout the nation. Do you, do you think, Mr. Gilmore, that if the Idaho legislature had amended its judicial code to allow appeals in this kind of case that you say the federal statute requires, the Supreme Court of Idaho would have entertained this appeal? That's a very difficult question to answer, Your Honor, because the Idaho Supreme Court, in three instances, has ruled that its court rules take precedent over statutes in the area of conflict, in rules of procedure, rules of evidence, and uh, rules regarding um, a special statutory court that was established to adjudicate water rights in the Snake River Basin. But it hasn't extended, though. The court has not said the same with respect to appellate rules. That is an open question. It and then, well, it seemed to, uh, you know, the one sentence, I believe the one sentence order seemed to say that this was not a final whatever it is that the Idaho statute required. My, my concern is that uh, since these uh, qualified immunity is designed to protect state officials, I would think the Idaho legislature could probably extend the appeal right if it wanted to. Um, I simply cannot concede that because, because the entire recent jurisprudence in Idaho has been for the state Supreme Court to say its rules preempt statutes are inconsistent. But in, in any case, however the state may speak, whether it speaks through the legislature or it speaks through the Supreme Court, there is an agency of the state which is capable of valuing the state's interest here. And if it believes that the state's interest really does require the, uh, the, the, the appealability of a qualified immunity ruling, there's some agency of the state that can say, that's the regime we will have. The Idaho Supreme Court could adopt an appellate rule that would explicitly provide for appealability of denials of absolute or qualified immunity motions. So, so that ultimately the responsibility for the non-appealability is with the state itself. It is with one of the branches of state yeah. government. Now, what do you say to the argument that the, uh, that the justification for immediate appealability is a justification which rests ultimately not on individual interests but on state interests? Uh, and therefore, if the state doesn't want to take advantage of it, uh, why indeed should a federal court interfere with that decision? Because the defendants in this case, or the petitioners here, are sued in their individual capacities. They are not sued uh, in, as state officers as such in their no. official capacity. But if they were I, I, merely individuals, there wouldn't be any, any kind of immunity that they could lay hold of. It's only because they're state officers that they have disqualified immunity. That is correct. Only, uh, only, only governmental officers are employed. Let, let me ask you one uh, anterior question about the, where the rulemaking authority is. Um, I don't recall the, the Idaho counterpart to 1292B that gives the discretion only at the appellate level. Was, is that a rule of court that the court's made up, or is it a legislative? It's um, Rule 12A of the Idaho Supreme Court, and uh, the Idaho Supreme Court decision of Todd versus Burrell um, states that that was modeled upon 1292. But so the source of it is the Idaho Supreme Court, not the Idaho legislature. That's correct. What was your answer to Justice Souter? I mean, I, I take it quite specifically. Why are the states following amicus briefs? It's up to the states. I mean, there's no federal interest here. If the state wants to subject its people to uh, good procedural advantage, they can. If they don't, they don't. The federal government doesn't care. So, so why, 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 what's, the, what's the answer to that? That's what I, I take it. The answer to that is the state officers who the attorney general must represent want to assert these personal defenses 
that you have held as a matter of federal law. What is it as a matter of, no, I take it the federal law is that 1983, in giving liability, imposing liability, in helping plaintiffs attain certain things, doesn't reach as far as the area where what the state person did was lawful or uncertain. It only reaches the area where what the state officer did was clearly illegal. Now, that's what this court has held often. Qualified immunity, in fact, arose under state law, and Congress bought into it. So, that's the federal interest. How is that federal interest hurt in any way at all by some states giving these people some procedural advantage and others not? In a literal sense, the federal interest is not hurt. Well, if that's so, then that isn't at the end of the matter because, well, why not? Because, because all of these officers of the state of Idaho are federal citizens and have citizens' rights. The federal government, I suppose, could be indifferent to all kinds of, all kinds of um, uh, violations of rights or immunities of federal citizens unless it enacts the law Mr. Take care of them. Mr. Gilmore, I thought that the qualified immunity federal rule did not just apply to federal officers, but also applied to state officers. It applies to all state, local, federal government officers. So then there is some federal interest, or at least uh, when we discerned that rule, we thought there was. Or when Congress enacted the statute, uh, relying on uh, prior uh, historical practice, Congress thought there was a federal interest in allowing state officers to have uh, immunity. There's we a federal give state officers immunity in federal courts, don't we? Yes, there's a federal interest that's been described in, in both the Bivens cases and the 1983 cases of, of preventing unfounded distraction of government officers and disruption of effective government. Suppose the state were, were to say that uh, we, we don't, for state law purposes, have this immunity. Our officers don't have this immunity. Under 1983, would the state officer nonetheless be able to claim an immunity that his state, as a matter of state policy, thinks the officer should not have? No. As I understand the court's precedent, state officers can only claim federal immunities, not state immunities. Uh, for example, in this case, um, I don't... No, I mean, I mean, his 1983 immunity, which he would get, is a federal source. But the state says, just as um, municipalities can waive their sovereign immunity, that we don't want our officers to be any less responsible than any, anyone else for the torts they commit. So our officers will not be shielded by immunity. Now, is there, would there be a federal interest in saying, state, in, in defiance of your policy, we are going to insist that in 1983 cases these people be shielded by qualified immunity? Yes, I think there are several federal interests. One is that there be identical decisions in a 1983 case between the federal district court and the state courts in the same state. I think there are interests that 1983 be applied uniformly throughout the nation. Well, isn't the interest stronger than that? Isn't the interest that the citizen uh, is liable for a judgment under 1983 under a federal statute and that is a federal immunity that appertains to that person as an individual. Yes, and that's the interest. It's part of the contours of the 1983. Uh, the liability of the officer, personally, it does not extend so far uh, as, as, as to avoid an immunity that the federal government grants. The federal government has an interest in all of its students. But you're saying the federal interest then is superior, that even though a state, say, can waive its 11th Amendment immunity, the state cannot waive the federally granted immunity for its offices. I, that the, the federal policy in shielding the state officer is tugs against the state policy, no matter how strong that state policy is. The state cannot waive its federal officers, excuse me, the state cannot waive its officers and employees' rights as federal citizens. This is a right that every citizen of the United States has if they work for a government. Is there, is there a right? That is the... An immunity. Uh, there, say, federal statutes allow me or you or anybody to sue certain groups of people under myriad circumstances. And in each of those statutes, there are thousands and thousands of ways in which the person might not be liable. That's because the statute doesn't cover the situation. 
Is there then some federal interest in making certain that the procedures that are used to decide each way he's not liable is going to be the same in every state in the federal government? No. I, that's, that's the problem I have. Once I see the case that way, and I have, obviously have been seeing it that way, once I see it that way, I, I find it difficult to articulate the federal interest. The federal interest is in preservation of the state actors' federal immunities created under federal law and, and the prevention of the loss of those federal immunities. May I ask a, a hypothetical question? Do you think uh, the state could pass a statute that was patterned after 1983 and said state courts shall entertain claims for violations of federal constitutional rights, and everything else the same as in 1983, and add to it, uh, and the state and, and the defendant shall not be allowed to plead qualified immunity? I think the state would have the constitutional authority to pass such a statute. Well, what if the federal courts, uh, what, if, what if Congress uh, passed a law saying, unlike the law uh, as written at present, that uh, w when we say there can only be an appeal from a final judgment, we mean it, and there are no exceptions. Is there some constitutional reason why we can't give that effect in a federal court? If federal law prohibited appeal from qualified immunity motions, from the denial of mm -hmm. qualified immunity motions in the federal courts, we would not be here today. Well, but we've, we've just given them a right uh, in the federal courts to appeal based on an interpretation of the law that Congress has applied, not, applied, not as a matter of constitutional law, have we? No, I do not believe the, uh, the qualified immunity defense has been characterized as a matter of constitutional law. Well, what if the, uh, the double jeopardy defense, which you know, has more of a constitutional basis, obviously, than qualified immunity. Uh, in, in the Abney case that we decided some time ago, we said a defendant could appeal that in the, fe in the federal system uh, on an interlocutory basis. Uh, do you think Congress could say, uh, no, uh, we're not going to allow that kind of an appeal? I am not an expert in this area of relations between federal courts and the federal Congress, but for the purposes of, of this case, I think I would say yes, only to try to outline the contours of what we're looking for. Congress could regulate that. Yeah. Congress. On, on that subject, it seems to me that if you prevail here, a states must give uh, uh, ABNY appeals in all double jeopardy. Cases. Do the states generally do that now? Um, when I did my research in that area, a majority of the states that I was able to identify allowed an ABNY appeal, and then there was a further safety valve. Three of the circuits, in cases where there are no, where, in which there are states located that do not have allowed ABNY appeals, have found an exception to younger abstention and have handled the practical difficulties of dealing with double jeopardy claims in the state courts by proceeding to enjoin the criminal prosecution. Well, it, it does follow from your position here, I suppose, that ab ABNY appeals would be mandated on the states in dub all double jeopardy cases if you prevail here. Um, it seems to me a parallel principle, perhaps a principle of even more importance, as the Chief Justice has indicated. I think there are theoretical parallels. There may be practical differences in the sense that I've just been talking about. There already may be an existing safety valve that the circuits have created. But if the, the and this is a, a, a right that does have a constitutional underpinning double jeopardy. And I think the precedent you've cited since states might very well want to adopt that policy as their own. But it seemed to me it wasn't your brief, it was I think the state's brief that, in support of you that decided Abney and it's sort of a en passant. But that would be a pretty big thing to say Yes, we uh, want the officer to be shielded here in 1983, even though we recognize the price might be that the states no longer have a choice that some of them thought they had about double jeopardy. I think if you look at the Kentucky amicus, uh, that is something the court must weigh in the balance. But I would hesitate to say that the court must reach that issue in this proceeding. I think because of the... Uh, practicalities of, a, of administration of ABNY, uh, in particular its modification in Richardson with the notion of a colorable double jeopardy claim, um, 
there's, an, there's another oddity here that in addition to um, the, the states saying their own state court is not sufficiently regarding of the state officer's rights, it's that uh, these cases are removable by the defendant, are they not? So if you're co- complaining about Idaho procedure being less generous to the defendant, why, why couldn't the defendant remove? At the time this case was brought, we had no reason to believe Idaho procedure would be less generous. And there are practical reasons. Well, you didn't know about that they had this uh, uh, final judgment, firm final judgment rule, and that they didn't allow interlocutory appeals except in specified cases? No, we knew that the language of Idaho Appellate Rule 11A was you may take appeal from judgments, orders, or decrees which are final. And this was an order, and this court's precedent had discussed the finality of denial of qualified immunity orders many times. Well, does, does uh, Idaho have the collateral order rule? Does it have the cone against beneficial? Yes, you would have known about that one way or the other. To the best of my knowledge, Idaho has never addressed beneficial to adopt or reject the collateral order rule. But you could have removed in any, in any case. Wouldn't one factor, if one wants, if a federal court is going to tell, if this court is going to tell the state, change your procedure for these cases only, that the defendant who was asking for that could have gotten himself into the federal forum? One cannot always get in the federal forum. In, in many 1983 cases, there will be a suit against a number of officers, perhaps city, county, and state. And without concurrence of all the defendants, there is no right of removal. Apart from that, if you have multiple defendants, and they, what interest would any of them have in not getting into federal court uh, on a question of the qualified immunity? Maybe not legal interest, but practical interest. Um, Idaho's a big state. It has 44 county seats. I was looking at a map yesterday. One of them, if two fish and game officers in Salmon, Idaho, for example, were sued in state district court and attempted to remove, the nearest federal district courthouse today would be in Pocatello, 209 miles away. So if they were looking at trial, they'd be looking at leaving their family and friends, having a two and a half to three hour drive with the new speed limits on a sunny, clear day, and five or six hours on a snowy day through mountain roads. There are real interests in keeping things in state court. But don't they have influence with the legislature in Idaho? (laughs) (laughs) But I think think to elaborate on Justice Ginsburg's question, the answer is the same as the the plaintiffs in Felder. They could have filed in, in federal district court if they didn't want to worry about Wisconsin's notice of claim statute. But the answer in there was, when... You, uh, when you are in state court applying federal law, you apply all the federal law, not some of the federal law. And these well, defendants then that, have Let me ask how far rights. you would take that, because there's one respect in which Idaho is more generous in allowing in interlocutory appeals, and that is from a new trial order, right? That's correct. So suppose we had a case uh, where a plaintiff had prevailed, and then the Judge, the trial judge said, sorry, I'm going to wipe that out. Um, let me see if I, I've got that reversed. I think I understand. Yeah, that. yeah. So, so where it would be, the, the state procedure would be to the defendant's advantage to take the interlocutory appeal. But he wouldn't be allowed that in the, in the federal system. Can the plaintiff then say... Uh, no, no interlocutory appeal from the, from the new trial. That's a close call, and I, I can't find anything in the court's precedents and things like FILA or 1983 to really answer that. I guess the only answer there is that, like development in FILA or development in 1983, that's going to require a case-by-case analysis. I don't see that as being a black-and-white issue. What I think is black-and-white is that if you don't get your appeal from denial of a qualified immunity motion, and you should prevail later, but you've gone to trial in the meantime, you've lost the benefits of your qualified immunity. And that is a black and white issue, not a gray issue. I think one of the essential underpinnings that we're looking for in this case is even-handedness between treatments of 
plaintiff's rights and claims in 1983 in state courts, and defendants' immunities. Um, Felder v. Casey has been decided. Uh, so Idaho's notice of claim statute allowed this case to be brought in state court. If state courts would be taken as they found them, the plaintiffs wouldn't be here at all. So it's time to, we think, look at the other hand. Look at the question of what happens to defendants who find themselves in state courts for whatever reasons. Uh, they prefer the forum for convenience. They can't get concurrence of all the defendants removed to federal court. They should be given the same benefits of federal law as plaintiffs. Mr. Gilmer, here's, here's, here's what, what troubles me. I, we, we do have language in our opinions to say that the, the, the immunity uh, right is, is a right not to be tried, not just a, not just a right to be acquitted or, uh, or, or found uh, uh, innocent. Um, however, we said that for the purpose of deciding whether the policy expressed in 1983 was sufficient to overcome what would be the normal operation of a federal statute. I'm not sure that, that it's the same question, whether that policy is strong enough to overcome uh, the state's ability to manage procedures in its own courts. Don't you think they're, they're really two different questions? I don't, because I think the policy we're talking about is what immunities can citizens of the United States assert and how can they protect them? And that's a policy that this court says overrides under the collateral order doctrine. The procedure that followed doesn't reach the question whether you will ultimately prevail on the immunity issue. If you do have the immunity, you, you will ultimately win the lawsuit. But you will have had the burden of a trial that you would otherwise avoid. A burden that, that is a burden on the state judicial system as well as on the parties to the case. And the top officers of the state judicial system say we're willing to pay that price in order to save the appellate courts uh, the premature adju adjudication burden. I think the answer there was, was given in Barron's last term. In that case, Barron said, the opinion in Barron's, was that when you talk about appealability, you don't talk about whether you're going to succeed or not succeed, whether you've got a good case or a frivolous one. You talk about categories of orders. And here is a category of order, a black and white category, denial of a motion for qualified immunity, be it 12v6 or summary judgment. And that is so important, so important under federal law that that's considered final. Mr. Gilmore, in the reverse situation, in um, cases, eerie cases in federal court where state law is governing, just as 1983 federal law is governing. The decisions of this court have said the, there is an essential character to the federal court system. And things that pertain to that essential character don't give way to the states. I mean, think of if, if a state allowed an interlocutory appeal whenever the lawyers liked it. If you had any, if you had diversity cases, you certainly wouldn't be having the federal courts copy that. So, is there should there be some kind of symmetry? Just as the federal courts don't have to make themselves over in the state courts' image, that the state courts ought to be allowed their essential characteristics, including how firm they want their final judgment rule to be. Symmetry should hold up to the supremacy clause and either the burdening, or in this case, the extinguishment of a federal immunity. What we're talking about here is the complete elimination of a federal immunity from discovery, from trial, should there be an erroneous trial court ruling. And there's always going to be an asymmetry between these two situations because of the supremacy clause. Mr. Gilmore, you, you have repeatedly characterized the, the right which is at stake here as being a personal right of United States citizens. The difficulty I have with that is, is this. As I understand our analysis of qualified immunity up to this point, it is an analysis which has recognized the immunity. Number one, because it was thought to be recognized at common law when 1983 went in, and that common law background is, is supposedly the basis for our interpretation. But number two, uh, because the interest which that immunity protects is the public or state interest. Uh, against having its officers made timid or distracted and so on. Uh, 
my understanding is we have never recognized the interest as being a separate individual interest. The individuals get the benefit because that's the necessary implication of the state getting the benefit. Am, am I right in my understanding? You have always tied the individual's interest to their function in the state or local government or national government in a Bivens case. Um, I see that my time is running. If there are no further questions from the bench at this moment, I will reserve remainder for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Gilmore. Mr. Ladder, we'll hear from you. <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the qualified immunity that is recognized in Harlow and the procedures set out in Mitchell are benefits offered to the states, including Idaho, by Congress. In this matter, the state has declined twice the benefit of the ability to take an interlocutory appeal from a qualified immunity denial. First, Idaho's longstanding finality rule and its non-recognition of the collateral order doctrine are state policies by the proper parties in Idaho, at least. The Idaho when you Supreme say non-recognition non of the collateral order doctrine, Mr. Latta, do you mean that the Supreme Court of Idaho has rejected it or simply has never confronted it one way or the other? It has never confronted it, and based on the jurisprudence, as I believe Mr. Gilmore and I both read it, it would be unlikely that they would do it because the door is open uh, by another means, Appellate Rule 12, that allows for permissive appeals to bring those up. Uh, permissive, uh, the permissive appeal rule uh, is the would be the preferred under Budell versus Todd manner to bring this. Uh, and what, what does the permissive uh, appeal rule provide? In, in, in briefly, in this case, to uh, to illustrate, having uh, received the order denying qualified immunity from the uh, trial judge here, the state could go back to the trial judge and ask for its order permitting a permissive appeal to the Supreme Court. The court would issue its order. That, that order would not be binding on the appellate court, because the, the Idaho Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would make its own decision in light of the... It's, it's like Federal 1292B. Exactly. Uh, not, excuse me, not exactly, but uh, that was the model. Uh, Rule 12 is modeled on 1292. Does the trial court have to give its permission to have the ruling appealed under that discretionary regime? No, it would not. It could, it could say this would be a frivolous appeal and, and deny it, just as it could have denied a 54B certificate if it were asked. But in the instance... I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to ask you a thing. What role does the trial judge have in establishing whether or not there may be a permissive appeal? Uh, his role under Rule 12 is to uh, look at the request for the order and say it should or should not be the subject of a permissive appeal. And if he, and if he says that it should not, then that ends the matter? No, it, that is not binding on the Supreme Court. You, you look at, uh, there are two separate decisions made, one by the trial judge to say yes or no, and then the Supreme Court acts on its own in light of what the trial judge has said. Well, I suppose then if we were to say that this is a, a substantive, very significant uh, right, uh, the, the right to have an interlocutory ruling, uh, that it would be then an abuse of discretion under Idaho law not to take the appeal, and so it, at least uh, the right could be enforced under the existing uh, procedural structure in Idaho. I would agree it could be under that. Mr. Lada, I thought that the Idaho's creation of that rule, which does modify 1292B, is to make it totally discretionary on its part. Idaho has a firm final judgment rule. It's enacted a provision for inter interlocutory review at its sole pleasure, not the trial judge's approval, but just. So how could it, it abuse its discretion when it's deliberately created a rule that gives it a prerogative to do as it pleases? I was unfortunately mixing the two court systems. The abuse of discretion rule uh, that, that I was thinking of would be abusing this court's discretion in failing to accept that permissive appeal. The Idaho Appellate Rule 12 is wholly permissive in nature, but it would be an abuse of this court's discretion not to accept a interlocutory appeal. Who's going to enforce, enforce that? 
it might be, it might occur only in the circumstance that brings us here where we are in front of the Supreme Court by virtue of uh, a If we don't assert. take a case, how, how are you going to get here? And it is, it is not likely that I would be the one who needs to get here. It would be the state. Well, just, just focusing on the Idaho court, based on uh, your comments to Justice Ginsburg, uh, I, I, I assume no one could tell the Idaho court that it has to take, has to exercise its discretion to take the appeal. But let's assume we think that it's very, very important that there be an interlocutory appeal. I was asking whether or not that could be accommodated within the existing Idaho structure and suggested that maybe it would be an abuse of discretion for Idaho Supreme Court not to take the appeal. And then Justice Ginsburg points out, well, the whole point of this is that they can have complete control over their docket. They're not answerable to anybody. And so it does seem to me that there is then a problem. There is. If, if, if we agree with the petitioner's case that this is uh, such a significant right that it has to be enforced in the state court. Well, the... Because it is permissive as to the Idaho Supreme Court, then it would only be answerable to this court on an abuse of discretion theory. But the solution to the problem presented by the permissive nature of Idaho Appellate Rule 12 is in what was suggested uh, by uh, Justice Ginsburg earlier. And that is that this represents and, and tells us that the first opportunity to exercise the ability to get exactly what you want in the way of the interlocutory appeal is to take this court's, excuse me, take Congress's route, and that is to remove it to federal court. Which would, might be equally inconvenient for your client, given the distance that Mr. Gilmore just told us about, that this state court is much more accessible. There are three federal courtrooms in Idaho, and for a large number of people in Idaho, it's a very long haul to a federal courtroom. But if the state believes on behalf of its actors that it must have the right of interlocutory appeal, then the answer is to go to federal court, not to be subjected to the, the discretion of the Idaho Supreme Court where they may not. I have thought court maybe question. the closest case supporting petitioner was Felder versus Casey. Uh, how do you distinguish that case and the reasons for it with the situation here? I take solace in the language of Felder versus Casey because it talks in this case, in that case, of the natural and permissible consequences of the otherwise uniformly applicable state rule. Felder does not dictate that there shall be an interlocutory appeal rule in state court. This finality rule won't... Well, it wasn't dealing with uh, the appeal problem. It was dealing with a notice. That's problem. correct. The but uh, the principle, at least, there was that there were times when we were going to impose certain requirements on state courts in connection with 1983 suits. That's right. The, the, but those burdens that you impose on state courts under Felder are the burdens on the plaintiff's exercise of her rights as opposed to the state actors. That, that was, I mean, if, but sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I, I really don't see how you say, well, they were plaintiffs and these are defendants, so what? I mean, that they, they, if, if that's all it is, that they're plaintiffs and here's the defendants. But when I read Felder, but I, you're going to agree with what I say is the problem, and you better not agree with it because it'll turn out it's wrong. I want to know why. I mean, when I, when I, when I read Felder, I thought that Felder follows from Rose because Rose is a case say you can't just kick 1983 actions out of your court. That's correct. And Felder was a case where they said the plaintiff has to show that he's hurt within 120 days. They said that's such a short time, 120 days, to notify that you're hurt, that it's about the same thing, kicking it out. All right. I don't know if that's a correct distinction or not. But if you're just going to distinguish it and let you find something like, I mean, can you say a little more about, well, well there were plaintiffs and their defendants? I mean, that to me doesn't work. Well, the state interest that's being protected by the immunity rule belongs to the states, not to the individuals, as, been, as has been offered by uh, the petitioners as a reason for applying this federal rule and this federal procedure in state court. 
the... Well, I, I suppose that would be true if, if everybody knew that the state was going to pay the judgment. Uh, suppose the individual is going to pay the judgment. Uh, can the federal government not condition uh, the uh, uh, terms uh, on, on which a, a person is liable for a violation of the Constitution of the United States under a federal statute? And say, we're not going to make you liable if the law was not clear. The, the choice of how the state is going to exercise its actors' immunities is up to the state. To well, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's true if it's, a state, uh, if, if it's a state liability scheme, but this is a federal liability scheme. The federal government has said you, as a person, are individually liable for violating 1983, but we'll give you a defense. And the state can elect to spend on that defense by paying for the Office of the Attorney General to defend them or indemnifying them, or, as was suggested earlier, telling the state actors when they come to work, you may be subject to a civil rights well, case. Suppose the state doesn't indemnify the person. It makes state, no or, the, or the state treasury is, is insufficient. I, I don't think the state can abolish an, a, a federal defense that, the, uh, that this court and, and, and the Congress, by, by inference, have granted to a, a defendant, an individual defendant. The state has not abolished the federal defense in this case. If the federal defense is immunity from liability, uh, that has to be distinguished from immunity from the burdens of trial that they're trying to uh, obtain by imposing this interlocutory appeal rule on the, uh, on the Idaho appellate system. Well, the, but the state of Idaho does recognize the doctrine of, of qualified immunity, doesn't it? Very much so, yes. So that all, Iowa, all Idaho is denying that the federal courts give is the interlocutory appeal. That is correct. And the, the, the distinction uh, that's of, of importance here is the manner in which the interlocutory appeal is taken in the federal system compared to the state system. Then you go. Are you... Finish? I want you to finish. Uh, well, I wanted, I wanted to answer. Excuse me. The, the interlocutory appeal under the federal system is pursuant to 1291 and the Cohen collateral order doctrine. And those are our first ideas that, that uh, a statute that doesn't apply and an idea that does not, uh, is not, has not been accepted by the Idaho courts uh, for application in state courts. And that provides the complete remedy that the petitioners seek uh, because there's a court system that allows for the interlocutory appeal that this case, excuse me, this court has created in Mitchell. And so if you, if, if, if they're objecting that, uh, if, if their objection is that we want our interlocutory appeal, the whole answer is the case can be, should have been removed because that's where you know you're going to get your interlocutory appeal. But why, why wasn't it a complete answer in Felder then to say, well, you could have filed in the district court for the Eastern District of Wisconsin rather than in the uh, circuit court? My understanding of the distinction here would be that uh, if you could have filed in the federal district court in Wisconsin, you would have still been subject to the 120-day rule. And that was what, uh, that limitation on bringing the state's rights was what was fatally wrong with the uh, Wisconsin Notice of Claim Statute. I thought what was wrong in, in, in Felder was that in the state court, by imposing the, the, uh, the, the, the time requirement, the right, in effect, uh, was, was, was shrunk a little bit. Uh, and they said, you can't shrink these rights uh, uh, against the wishes of those who, who assert them. In this case, um, the, the party that is protected by the appealability rule uh, in a qualified immunity case is the state. And the state says, through its official agencies, I don't care. It's okay with me. I don't want that right. Isn't that a distinction between this case and Felder? It has been exercised, uh, yes. The, the state's position, as reflected in Idaho Appellate Rule 11, is that it does not want to uh, hear interlocutory appeals, and it may exercise that right with respect to the state's interests. Well, this, if this is an optional thing with the state, then I suppose the state could decide not to accept the qualified immunity doctrine at all if it thinks its officers don't need it, right? That, that is correct. They could do that. 
They could direct the Attorney General, uh, perhaps through legislation, uh, likely through legislation, not to assert the defense. And well, I, I if, a, if a 1983 action were brought, uh, uh, the defendant would, um, I mean, he could tell the Attorney General not to, but he couldn't tell the individual who's being sued for his private fortune not to assert a defense that he has. Do you think the state could do that? Now, you offered us this. It was for the benefit of the state, and we don't think we need it, so we're not going to let our state officers do it. You don't think they could do that, do you? They could direct or make a policy decision not to uh, use the benefit of the qualified immunity defense. I'm not talking about the state executive. I'm talking about the state courts. In the state courts. In the state courts. The state courts could say the federal government's been very kind to offer us this, uh, this uh, immunity defense, but uh, speaking for the state, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, you're liable under 1983 without any uh, immunity. That's your position. The, the, if, if the question, uh, if I understand the question, if, if it's collapsing the interlocutory appeal rule into the qualified immunity issue, uh, then... Oh, I mean, they, they go together, it seems to me. If, if, if you, you're, you're asserting a doctrine of waiver, I guess, or of, of I don't know, uh, 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 declination of offer. And, and you, you say that the federal government has essentially offered the state the advantage to its officers of having an immediate interlocutory appeal. And the state has said, we don't think we need it. Well, if they can do it for that element of qualified immunity, why can't they do it for the whole doctrine? And just say, we, we will not allow that as a defense to a 1983 suit. They, I think your position is, yes, they can do that. At the fullest extent, the answer yeah. is yes. You they certainly don't do have that. to take that position to defend the, this case because there's a vast difference between giving up a procedural right that does not affect the ultimate outcome of the case and giving up a defense that would change the outcome in many, many cases. I would agree with that. And in Felder, of course, part of the analysis was that the, uh, the statute affected the outcome in a significant number of cases, and that's not true here. That's why I looked at the distinction between qualified immunity as a defense and the interlocutory appeal, because irrespective of not being able to exercise the interlocutory appeal that they seek by imposing 1291 on the state, the immunity defense will never go away, and it wouldn't matter what kind of a recovery the plaintiff would obtain down below. If the state was, in fact, immune from suit, the Supreme Court would so Yeah, hold. but in, in one respect, it does go away, because the one element of the immunity defense is the element not to have to stand trial, and that does go away. If the only time you can raise qualified immunity is after trial, then you have lost that element of the immunity, and in that to that degree, it, it is outcome determinative. It, it, I, I, would, I, I would disagree. We've looked at that outcome determinative issue uh, as hard as we can. And if the answer is, does it determine the outcome of the lawsuit, the answer is no. No, but it determines the outcome of whether they have to stand trial or not. In exactly. that respect, there is a determination there and is. the bell cannot be unrung. With respect to the trial bell, yes, it cannot be unrung. And if you don't want to hear that chimed in the background, either change Rule 11 or remove it to federal court where you're guaranteed to be in a position to take the interlocutory appeal that they seek. Well, it really doesn't deny the right not to stand trial, does it? No, the person has that right not to stand trial. The, the only issue is what, when the district judge makes a mistake in, 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 the, in the course of adjudication and, uh, and finds that right not, not to be applicable. Um, what is the procedural remedy? You, you, you don't have to concede that the right not to, ha not to stand trial has been abrogated by the state, do you? No, not at all. Well, but you, the, dis the, the district court here, uh, the district court of Bonner County, uh, entertained a motion for summary judgment at the beginning of this case, didn't it? Yes, it did. And one of the grounds for summary judgment was qualified immunity. That's correct. So it's not as if Idaho said, we will never recognize any qualified immunity defense until you have, you have the, the day before trial you have to. The district court heard the claim and simply denied, decided against you. And all, your, all the other people are being denied, the state people, is the right to appeal that decision before trial. The district court decided the issue in our favor, yes. thinking that there had been a violation of clearly established law. And at this juncture, what the petitioners want is to take their interlocutory appeal, but they're not in a court system that's otherwise available 200 miles to the south in, in Moscow to take that appeal. 
and that's the uh, that's the the problem that they're faced with is having made the decision, they're now objecting to the effect of staying in the state system. I suppose your case would be harder if Congress had written into 1983, made it a nice, neat package with the substantive right and the procedural right all rolled into one. But the uh, interlocutory appeal that we're talking about comes back from uh, the, the Bivens claim or the 1983 claim. It comes from the standard 1291, the collateral order that applies as a matter of federal procedural law to all federal courts on all questions. That, that is, that is exactly. unique to 1983 about 1291 and the collateral order rule. That is correct. Uh, Johnson versus Jones shows us that very explicitly. Uh, qualified immunity is not an issue, excuse me, the interlocutory appeal is not an issue of 1983. It's a creature of 1291. And, and in your analysis, uh, we, we see it the same way. When the statute was passed, there were rights and immunities. And at some point, I believe it's 114 years later, Mitchell comes down from this court, and now we have interlocutory appeals under 1292 and under Cohen that apply in state court. And if the Office of the Attorney General wants to take advantage of the, the second benefit offered, along with the immunity itself, and that is the interlocutory appeal recognized by this court, they can do so by removal. We don't think that they can do so by engrafting 1291 into Idaho Appellate Rule 11. Well, you might even go so far, I suppose, as saying there's no right uh, to even have an appellate structure at all in Idaho for a civilian civil dispute like this. Uh, this court earlier in uh, the MLB decision acknowledged that there was no right, there was no uh, uh, requirement that the state provide civil appeals. And so the answer to the, your question is that, that is correct. We could go that far. The practicalities are that, that that is not what has happened here. We do have a civil system, but that civil system has chosen to uh, look at the finality rule. And we can look at this case in in the federal court system the same way, if Congress were to amend 1291 and make it a final judgment ordered decree rule as opposed to a final decision rule, then the underpinnings in Mitchell for allowing interlocutory appeals, the statutory underpinning at least, would go away. Would, would, go ahead. No. Ms. Lonnie, do you think your case might be, uh, might be uh, uh, weaker if uh, if Cohen hadn't decided that there are are exceptions which uh, which this court can carve out to the to the final decision rule, in other words, suppose the federal statute were categorical, and this court had said, "Well, yes, the procedural statute is categorical, but it seems to come into conflict with the right set forth in 1983." And since it comes into conflict with it, we think the right set forth in 1983 must prevail. And despite a final judgment, absolute rule, we think that statute prevails. If it would prevail over the federal uh, statute, wouldn't it prevail over the state statute as well? If it were that strong a federal policy, it, it, it would be a much it would be a much more difficult case for us to argue here. Uh, interestingly, under Cohen, of course, the, the number of things that now fit into. Uh, final decisions that this court is is going to look at keeps keeps growing. It's not shrinking, and and there's no hint that the uh, uh, the Congress is going to move to a, a stricter rule than the final decision rule. It's growing at a slower rate, though. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're not leaking quite as much as we used to. <laughs> I suppose another way of phrasing Justice Scalia's question is whether the appealability rule adopted in Mitchell is a construction of 1291 or a construction of 1983. And I suppose the answer is obvious because Mitchell wasn't even a 1983 case. That is correct. When we look at the Idaho state structure and the two opportunities that the state had to take their interlocutory appeal, first as a matter of policy and second as a matter of tactics that are to be applied in this case, we suggest that the court decline the invitation to apply 1291 to Idaho Appellate Rule 11. Congress provided a complete remedy in the removal statute. It left to the state their choices on how to conduct their business and balance these competing state interests, and the balance is to be struck for the states 
not in favor of engrafting a federal statute. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Latta. Mr. Gilmore, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. The state court balance has already been upset. This case is in state court. It would not be in state court but for Felder v. Casey. And I think we've really got a core issue that's sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. But Felder v. Casey just matches what happens on the diversity side, doesn't it? And you got Rule 3 that says the case commences uh, when you file the complaint. But if the state law says that's not good enough, you have to serve it. That state rule will, will apply in, in the federal court in a diversity case. So, so Felder is just the, the match for, for that, isn't it? I think not. When you, when you talk about Rule 3, you're talking about something that can be complied with that does not extinguish a substantive right. In this case, the substantive right at issue, the right not to go to trial, will be absolutely extinguished if there's an erroneous trial. Not the immunity. The immunity. Not, 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 and the difference in Felder is if you didn't give that notice that the state had, you don't get your foot in the door in court at all. It's quite different. I, I would contend that it's just the same. You don't get your foot in the door for appellate review to protect your immunity. There's no procedure you can comply with. In Felder, at least, you could have made it there in 120 days. The way the Idaho Supreme Court has ruled, there's nothing that could have been done to get you there as a matter of right. In federal court, this court has never said you must try to go under 1292 rather than 1291 if you want to get a review of a qualified immunity order. And, and there's no reason to impose that possibility of having an opportunity, maybe, for appellate review in the state courts. It should be the same in both court systems in order to preserve the benefits of the immunity. The, the extent to which this, these finality notions are tied into um, federal substantive rights is strained, isn't it, when one of the threads that you're tugging is the collateral order rule comes out of Cohn against Beneficial, which I think was a diversity case. It was a diversity case. But the, the finality is tied to the substance of what is going on. And in here, it's the court's, the court's um, characterization of qualified immunity that determines whether it's final. 1291 doesn't tell you whether it's final. It's the court's characterization of the qualified immunity, the immunity not to go to trial, that is the key to finality. 1291 doesn't tell you what's final. The court's 1983 precedents tell you what's final. And this is a final order under those precedents. Just one or two other points. Um, well, I see my yeah. time is up. Thank you, Mr. Gilmore. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>